Scripture reading tonight is going to be from John chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. John 14, verses 1 through 14. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you? And yet you have not come to know me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe in because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so. The Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Good evening, church. Good to be back with you tonight. We are going to find ourselves back in the upper room again. As you notice, we're plodding along, and we are already halfway through chapter 14. We are in part three of our evening series, Bound Together, Uniting Our Hearts to Christ. And we are spending time in the upper room, not just learning about what is true and what happened to some people in the Bible, but also to learn what is true so that it might also, at the same time, be something that happens to us. And like we said before, our primary goal is the primary result that we see what happens in the upper room. These 11, after Judas leaves, are sharing a meal with Jesus, an intimate dining experience. And they're spending time with Him and He's speaking to them, and they are in deep distress and struggling because of the words that he's saying about leaving them. And in the, at the end of all of this, by the time we come to the end of chapter 16, when he says that you all will depart, but the Father won't leave me, these 11 men, although they'll have a difficult night and a difficult day the next day, throughout the rest of their life, they are bound together to Jesus Christ in love. In our modern language, we would probably call this, they formed a healthy attachment. And that's what we've been kind of using the language in our Sunday nights, saying, how can we form a healthy attachment to Jesus? So that what we have with Him is not just mechanical or institutional or just theoretical, but what we have with Him is relational, that we are bound together in a healthy attachment to Him. Early in our series, the very first night we learned, that an attachment is a bond that transcends both time and space. A connection that's made that doesn't require shared space or even shared time. That you are bound together with that person. 
And at the same time, we also learn that there are two major factors that are involved in creating or establishing a healthy attachment to somebody else. The first factor is, how do you view yourself? Positively, do you view yourself as somebody who could and is worthy of receiving love from somebody? Do you believe that about yourself? Negatively, do you believe that maybe you're not worthy of love, that no one should ever love you? So how do you view yourself? The second thing is, how do you view the one to whom you're trying to be attached? Positively, do you trust that person to love you? Do you look at them and say, they're a trustworthy person, they won't hurt me, they won't harm me, they're safe and I can receive their love? Or negatively, do you look at them and say, I'm just not sure I trust them to love me? And if you'll take the positive view of the other and the positive view of yourself, That yes, you can receive love, and yet this person is worthy or trustworthy to give you love. What you have in that is a healthy attachment. And we want those to be formed. What I want to share with you tonight is not just the definition or the factors that create attachment, but when attachment is formed, attachment also has characteristics. You can see it. You can experience it. You can know it. And so when you're in the middle of an attachment... You can say, yeah, I'm attached to this person. So some of the characteristics of attachment are this, like you would describe an attachment as a haven of safety. When you feel concerned or scared or worried, an attachment is a place where you go to feel safe. You might experience this with a friend or a spouse or a parent. The other thing you can see about a characteristic of an attachment is that it becomes a center for your exploration, Here's how researchers found this out. Parents, you'll appreciate this. Um, What they did was they would track children. They would take a a parent who had a good, healthy attachment with their child to a playground, and the parent would sit at the park bench. And if you trace the the steps of a child, you would see like like, like lacing a bow, like the child would start with the parent and would run out and do something and then come back and circle back. And then it would start there at the parent and go back out and then come back. And the center of all of that child's exploration was the healthy attachment. And you can see that in spouse as you're maybe thinking about career and who do you come back to to center with and then run back out to the world, but then come back to healthy attachment. And we're supposed to experience that with Christ. There's another one that sometimes is viewed as a negative, and it can be if it's unhealthy. Any of these can be unhealthy if the attachment is not healthy. But if the attachment is healthy, there's a third characteristic that sometimes feels unhealthy, but it actually is a sign that you have a relationship, and that is separation anxiety. Now, the term anxiety doesn't always fly too well, and and we don't always like to experience that, but maybe another way to say this for you to see it is this. If you experience separation anxiety, that means you have formed an attachment. If you never feel any sort of angst or distress from being away from anybody, You might be missing some attachment. And so when you experience some form of distress because you're away from somebody you care about, that's separation anxiety. And experiencing that is not always a warning sign to something being bad, although it can be if it's unhealthy. But it really is evidence that you have a relationship. But separation anxiety does cause a troubled heart, so to speak. Unrest. And this is the problem that Jesus is dealing with with his disciples in our text tonight. So we've taken two weeks to talk about how you form an attachment to Jesus, and that requires us knowing who he really is 
and letting him be who he really is to us, ultimately being the Savior that washes us, that purifies us. And when we realize that we need him and let him be who he is, it begins to form a relationship. And when you start to have a relationship with him, and then there's separation, you're going to experience anxiety. So what do we do about the separation? That's what Jesus is dealing with tonight. He's been saying to them frequently, I'm going away. I'm leaving. Where I'm going, you cannot come. You can't follow me now. Over and over, he's been saying this to them, and it's really causing a lot of anguish inside of them. Jesus actually just finished having a personal exchange with Peter, where Peter said, Lord, why can't I go with you? I'll die with you. And Jesus says, you can't go with me now. Where I'm going, you cannot come. And after he finishes that interchange with, G with, with Peter, the chapter comes to a close, but the conversation doesn't really end. So don't let the chapter fool you. Peter is probably sitting uh, across the way from Jesus at this U-shaped table. And after he has a direct conversation with Peter about the fact that he's going to deny him, Jesus turns to all of them and he says, he can just see the anguish on their minds and on their hearts. And he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't let them be troubled. You see, a troubled heart is the problem in this moment with these disciples. But it's always been the problem of mankind since Genesis chapter 3. A troubled heart, anxious, restless, unsettled living in the belief that I'm not okay and things are not okay. That's what this unrest is. And it's plagued mankind since Genesis chapter 3. You see, the center of us, within us, our soul experiences this. And it's caused by separation. This unrest is caused by separation. Mankind experienced a deep, deep peace in, Garden of, in the Garden of Eden. They had union with God, relationship with God, and there was peace that transcended any concern. But once sin entered the world, that peace was lost. And the way that Paul describes it in Romans 3 is this, that within sinners, the way of peace is not known to them. The way of peace cannot be known to sinners if in sin we are separated from the one who gives us peace. And so as, as we are separated from God, we experience unrest because we are apart from him. And it's this restlessness, this unrest that things are not okay and I'm not okay, that is the engine that doesn't just drive the world, but it drives you and me. And it leads us to solve that unrest. How do you solve your unrest? You have a couple options. One is you can just simply um, ignore it, pretend like it's not there, and the way that we do that is either by self-righteousness, by saying, I'm fine, look at me, I'm amazing. Or we dumb it down by indulgence. Just forget about it and not worry about it. Or we deal with it and address it. And that's what Jesus wants us to do. You see, the only answer that Jesus offers us is our original answer and that is reunion with the father jesus calls him father continually in fact in the reading that uh, craig did for us did you count how many times the word father was mentioned 15 times 15 times in 14 verses jesus is referencing the father the father is the answer and so philip's statement if you look down there i believe it's in verse 8 philip's statement is seen with a little bit of, um, you know, I'm not sure he gets it, 
But in fact, Philip really gets the core problem of humanity. He just doesn't know he has the answer in front of him. Listen to what Philip says. Lord, show us the Father. Make him visible. And Philip says, it'll be enough for us. Philip's wise. He gets it. He knows what the answer is. He says, Jesus, if you'll just show us the Father, that will be enough for us. Let me give you a reference where that word is used in another place, and this might help you, where Paul was pleading with God that the thorn will be removed from his side, and God replies back to him, and he says, my grace is sufficient for you. It's enough. What you have is enough. And what Philip is getting at is the core problem and the core answer for mankind, and that is, if we could just have the Father again, it'll be enough. It will be enough. Now, it might seem like this restlessness that I'm not okay and things are not okay should just go away once we become Christians, right? The sin problem that separates us from God is solved in Jesus Christ, and so it should be gone. But sometimes we're not, re- we're not restless because we're in sin, but sometimes we experience restlessness because we still have some perceived distance from the Father, And that's what Jesus is dealing with with his disciples here. Here's kind of a fair warning for you. As we preach through the idea of how you become healthily attached to Jesus, the closer you become to Jesus, the closer you draw near to him, the more you know about him, the more you relate to him, the more that you finally love him, the more a holy unrest will grow in you. The more you love Jesus, the more holy unrest will come up in you because what you'll long for is to finally have the full reunion with God. When you realize that the promise of Jesus Christ is when He comes, He'll bring you to Himself and you'll be made like Christ and you'll have a full reunion like the way that heaven is described where the heavens are rolled away and God comes to dwell with us. The more you know and love Christ, the more you'll long for that. And so you'll be like Paul when he says that we long to take off of this tent to put on the house established by God. We long for that. We're hungry for it. And that's why the first century had such a common refrain in their church gatherings. They would say so often, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. They would say that so much that many people accused Paul of thinking that Jesus was going to come back in his lifetime because he was begging for Jesus to come back. He longed for it. He was hungry for it. There was a deep abiding desire for Jesus to come back. And so I'm warning you that the closer you get to know Christ, the closer you love Him and adore Him, the more you're going to experience some of this separation anxiety. But that's a holy thing that will drive us. We can't talk about all that tonight. So Jesus not only is dealing with the problem, but He gives us the answer. He gives us a way to ease this separation. And if you look in verse 1, He gives you the answer. So we can sort of maybe just read verse 1 and be done, but we're going to maybe try to make some sense of the rest of it. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Okay, how, Jesus? Believe in God. Believe also in me. You see, trust in God was not a problem for these Jewish people, these disciples. Trusting God was born into them, was bred into them, it was raised into them. And so they they learned to trust God. And Jesus is saying, hey, like you understand how you trust God, trust me. Faith is is the answer. In fact, John would later say in his epistle that faith is what helps us overcome the system of the world. Okay. 
But faith can sometimes feel like, to a church audience, like a cop-out sort of answer. You know, we just throw faith at you, and there's no really, you know, bring it down from the sky and saying, what does that really mean? You know, okay, go have faith. So we need to really dig deep into this. And what Jesus does for us is he doesn't just give us the solution to the problem of our restlessness. He gives you the solution to get the solution for your restlessness. What he tells you in the rest of these verses is what you need to then produce faith. He gives you the fuel you need to produce faith in you so that when you have faith, you no longer are restless in God. And one word the Bible would use to describe that is hope. You see, hope is the fuel that drives the engine of faith. Hebrews 11.1 says it this way, that faith is the substance of what you hope for. You see, you actually can't have biblical faith unless you have something you're hoping for. You might have a set of ideals, you might have a religious ordinance, you might have some rituals that you keep, but you don't have a deep abiding trust in something outside of yourself if you don't have something you hope for. And here what the apostles are wanting is a hope-filled relationship with God, the Father. Show us the Father, it's enough for us. They're hoping for that and Jesus says, believe in God, believe in me, have faith. But what fuels Faith is when you finally have hope. And so what Jesus is going to do is teach you how to have hope. Let me do this quickly for you. I see four movements, okay? There's four movements in this text I want you to make sure you get. Verses 2 and 3 are going to tell you the promise of the Father. We're going to try to stoke the flame of hope, okay? So, so we've got hope to be with God. We're going to try to stoke that flame tonight. So you hang with me. Here's how we stoke it. Number one, the promises of the Father. Listen to what he says in verses 2 and 3. Jesus says, in my Father's house, there's many rooms. If it weren't so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Boy, Jesus is filled with promise. He's filled with promise. And you see, love promises, you know, promises from a lover. Love promises, promises that come from a lover are powerful. And when they are trusted, when that lover is trusted, when you really believe in that lover, even if everybody else around you is saying, don't believe that person, if you believe in that person, they give you the promise of love, boy, that can carry you through some of the deepest despair. Promises of a lover. And Jesus says this, he says, in my father's house, the place where my father dwells, there's going to be many rooms. Some of you may have the old translation that says mansions. It's not necessarily a very good translation of that word. It doesn't mean we're going to have like, like a gated entrance and a cul-de-sac of mansions, you know, where God is kind of at the clubhouse at the beginning. And then we've got like up on the hill, Peter takes you in the golf cart and you get up to your mansion. Now, what he's talking about, if you know about homes in the area, the father's house, if he had sons, he didn't build another house for the son to live in with his family. He built a wing, an addition, and they would have additions onto this big home and they would have a porch or a patio that would join all of them together. So they lived together. And what he was saying was, in my father's house, there are rooms that we'll dwell together, we'll eat together, we'll live together, we'll relax together, we'll enjoy together. And so he's promising that there are places 
And not just generically, but do you hear what he says? For you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. It's a promise. I can't amplify anything else other than it's a promise. Then in the Father's house, there's a place for you. And Jesus promises this. If I go to make this ready, promise again, I'll come back. I'll come for you. That where I am, you can be as well. Promises are trusted when the person who gives them to you is trustworthy. And do you see what Jesus does to amplify that for you? He says, if it were not so, what I've told you, guys, I've been with you for how long? Three years? Have you ever heard me lie? I've ever been wrong? I don't know if he was rubbing it in their face like I would, but can, can you trust me? If it weren't so, if what I'm telling you right now in this dark moment weren't so, would I have told you this? No. And so, first step to stoke the flame of hope is to think about, dwell on, and meditate on the promises of the Father. The second movement is in verses 7 through 11, where Jesus says that we can have the perception of the Father. We can perceive Him and know Him. You see, what Jesus would say there in verses 7 through 11 is to know Christ, to know Him, is to know the Father. In fact, His name was announced to be God with us, Emmanuel. God dwelling among us. John would say at the beginning of his, uh, his letter here that we beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. He's from the Father. And we looked at Him and we saw Him. And so He's the full display, the image of God. And you could spend a lifetime digging up, studying, and learning about Jesus Christ. And as you do that, trust this. The more you know Christ, the more you know God. The more you know Jesus, the more you know Father. The very thing that you need. But it's more than knowledge. It's more than just information that you can acquire. It's more than just an encyclopedia. And it's more than just a multiple choice test about his attributes and qualities. It's knowing him. It's relationally knowing him. We're going to get into this next week to, to make full sense of this. But he doesn't just promise information about Jesus so that you can have information about God. He also promises his presence. Look in verse 15 through 17. I'll read this. Uh, like I said, I'm going to preach this next week. Or I'm sorry, in two weeks um, in depth. But Jesus says this. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I'll ask the Father. He will give you another helper, the Spirit, to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him or knows Him, you know Him. Now listen carefully. For He dwells with you and will be in you. And what Jesus is promising is that when He ascends to be with the Father again, He's going to ask the Father, He's going to send the Spirit to be with us. The gift of the Holy Spirit. And that gift will be the presence of God in us. He began to awaken for us the senses of who God is. In fact, Paul prayed for it this way. He said in Ephesians chapter 1 that our, the eyes of our understanding, the eye of our faith, would be finally opened so that we would know the power, the majesty, the glory, and the riches of who God is. That we would begin to perceive Him. Paul described the other end of that spectrum in Romans 1, the problem of sin he says that it deadens our ability to perceive and know the attributes of God in the created world. In fact, he says we suppress that because of sin. 
Sin deadens our senses to the attributes of God all around us. But the Holy Spirit in us brings that alive. So in verse 7, Jesus says, From now on, you know the Father and you see the Father. But that word see is different than what Philip would say when he says, show us the Father. Philip was saying, make him manifest. My eyeballs want to see the Father. And when Jesus said, you'll know him and you'll see him, he says, you'll experientially, gnosko know. You'll, you'll walk through it and know. And when he says see, he says, you'll begin to perceive him spiritually. And so you'll see him in the gifts that come to you. Those around you that care for you and love you and tenderly are near you and help you, you'll begin to see the Father in that. You'll begin to see the Father in those gifts that not just come to you, but the gifts that come from you to those that need you. You remember what Jesus said to those that in Matthew 25 that were blessed and were coming into the kingdom? You remember what he said to them? When you fed them, when you clothed them, you were feeding and clothing me. And so not only the gifts that come to us do we begin to perceive that it's from the Father of all good gifts, but as you and I become people that bless others and give to others and those that are hurting, we begin to experience an opportunity to meet God and who He is. We'll see Him in the way that we change. If you really change the way the Gospel tells you to change, not just white-knuckled, I'm going to do this better, but if you go to Galatians 5 and you see when He says that when we walk by the Spirit, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh, but what we end up doing is producing the fruit, the evidence of the Spirit. And so when you look at yourself over the course of a year, five years, ten years, and you realize, I'm growing in patience and love and peace and kindness, and you see that growing in yourself, all of a sudden you say, I know it wasn't me, it's God. He's near me, He's in me, He's changing me. And you begin to have your eyes open. When you are captivated by the one you love, even if they leave you, you still notice traces of them all over. Some of you have probably experienced this with a human relationship. Things remind you of the one that you're captivated of. Things remind you of the one that you love. And so it may be a smell or maybe an experience or maybe another attribute in a person, but it stokes the flame in you of the one that you love because you love them so much you're seeing them everywhere. And that's what happens with God is as you grow to love Him, you begin to perceive Him in all things. And then you begin to see God in people. Remember the beatitude that Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart? They will what? They'll see God. They'll begin to see God. Let me give you the third movement, because I could just camp out here forever. Verses 12 through 14, we don't have just the promises of the Father, or the perception of the Father, but we get participation with the Father. Verse 12, look what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these he will do because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Here's a third way that you can really quench, or quench the, the deep restlessness in you to be connected to God. You can begin to participate with him. Participate in his will. First, it starts with what you do. Jesus says, if you believe in me, you'll do the works that I do. The works of Christ. Now, what were the works of Christ? Just up there in verse, verse 10, Jesus said, the works that I do are really the works of the Father. 
They're his will. They're his works. And so you begin to participate in the will and the work of God on earth. When you believe in Christ, who he really is, who he truly is, you will begin to participate in his will. When it captivates your mind that he was God in the flesh who redeemed mankind, and he is the real answer for every churning heartbreak and difficulty in this world, when you really believe that, there will be a hunger in you to participate with him that cannot be satisfied with anything else. It will shape the way that you think. It will shape the way you speak, the way that you work in your workplace, the way that you enjoy leisure, the way that you relate to other people. When you're so full of God's love for you, it will thrust you into a world of loving others and you will begin to experience God by participating in his work, in his honor. And I want to give a side note to what Jesus said about the word greater there. This trips people up sometimes. They say, well, Jesus said we'll do greater works than him. And he turned water into wine and he healed the blind man. And, you know, he made people who couldn't walk stand up and walk. So if he did that level of work, man, I can't wait to do greater works than that. That's a great misconception of what the word greater means. Jesus was not talking about that. In fact, if you asked him, he said the great work is not making a man walk or see but to watch a man or woman be provoked to understand faith. Jesus loved teaching and used healing so that he could teach. And when he said greater work, what he meant was, you will be more influential than even I was in my life. Greater. Your influence will be greater. You'll bring more people to know and understand the solution of the Father. Greater works. If you'll just participate with him, when you finally know you're loved. But it's not just what you do in participation. It's also what you desire, who you are. Jesus says in verse 13, <clears throat> whatever you ask, whatever you ask, I'll do it. But whatever you ask in my name. You see, ask in my name is not a form of religion that Jesus handed to us. It's not what it is. It can sound that way sometimes because we all sort of have a rhythm in the way that we pray, right? We pray, 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 and at the end we say, you know, in Jesus' name, amen. And that can feel sort of just like a form or a structure of religion, but what Jesus was saying was, in my name, in my honor, in my legacy, in my will, as you learn and trust and love who Jesus is and you place your entire life into him, when you come to the Father and pray, it is in him that you can stand before the Father and it's in him that you want your will to be shaped and changed. It's in Him and by Him and for Him. It's a shared identity and a shared will as the two, like Jesus shows us in marriage, become one. A shared will. To grow so close with someone that you carry on their will even after they're gone is to keep them alive. Thomas Campbell in his uh, essay uh, entitled Hallow Ground, he wrote it, I think, 1825, said to live on in hearts we leave behind is not to die. And think about Jesus being separated from us and ascending to the Father. And as you and I participate in his will, just like we were setting up a foundation to honor him, it keeps him alive. Do you see that? It brings him near to us. And so as you participate in his work and you participate in his will, he can't be any nearer to you than that. He's close to you. All this sounds good that we might have Promises to believe and senses to perceive and work and will to participate in. 
But all this comes to us because ultimately Jesus made the provision for us to be with the Father, to reconnect to the Father. You see, Thomas' question in verse 5 was a good question. He said, we don't know the way. We don't know where you're going, and we don't know the way. And it's very true. We all have longings that we just don't know how to fill until we meet and know who Jesus Christ really is. And when Jesus said to him, you know the way, in verse 4, he was not referring to a path. Like, like, like you know the way to go. When he said, you know the way, he was referring to a destiny that was not ours, but his. Jesus was telling him the way that he must go is how we come to the Father. And what was that way? To walk up a hill called Golgotha and for him to die in our place. You know the way in which I have to go so that you can be reconciled to the Father. You see, the answer Jesus has for our deep longings is clear. It's the Father. The Father is what solves the restlessness of our heart. He knows this not just because he's intellectually informed or has been told. He knows this because he lived with the Father his entire life. Jesus never experienced separation anxiety while he lived. He never experienced that restlessness of sin that makes you wonder, how can I fill this hole in my heart? Because he lived intimately with the Father. But there was one time where Jesus, that's all Jesus called him was Father. But there's one time in the Gospels we see Jesus not call him Father. Do you remember? The one time Jesus did not call him Father. He was hanging on the cross. And what did he say? Not my Father, my Father. He said, my, my God and my God. You see, what Jesus stared into and faced and the cup of judgment that he drank was the black hole of eternity without a Father. He experienced that so that you and I would not have to live eternally without the very thing that we need, a father. He experienced the taste of all of that without a father, so you and I could eternally have the father again. Jesus, when he said, I am the way, the truth, the life, he wasn't just giving you an example to follow. He wasn't just giving you a teaching you need to learn. He wasn't just giving you an activity to do. All those things are true. He does give you ways to follow and activities to do and teachings to learn. But that's not what he was meaning in verse 6 when he said, I am the way. He was not giving you something to do. He was describing himself. I am the way, the truth, the life. He's not saying, hey, go this way. He's saying, I'm the way. You don't come to the Father unless you come to me. You won't. And so I've got to go this way. Jesus is the means to the Father, but he's also the end when he said, when I come back, I'll bring you to myself. So to have Jesus is to have the Father. To know Jesus is to know the Father. To love Jesus is to love the Father. And to be loved by Jesus is to be loved by the Father. You see how important it is for us to create an eternal bond with Jesus? The restlessness that you deal with in your life will never be satisfied until you drink from the well that never ends and eat from the bread in which you'll never be hungry. Jesus. And until you do that, you will continue to eat food that, as he would say, perishes. you got to eat from his bread and drink from his cup. He's got to be the one that you are attached to. And when that's the case, you will have every bit of what your heart desires found in Jesus Christ. Peter would finish it this way. 
as he would encourage the Christians to stay close to Jesus. When he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the testing of your faith, being much more precious than gold, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible, full of glory. Jesus. Let yourself be loved by Jesus. Remind yourself of that love. And let that attachment form so closely with Christ that you'll finally get the thing that your heart has always wanted. If you need help with that, let's help, let us help you. And come as we stand and sing.